นโมตัสสะบุคคะทูอะระหะทูสัมมาสัมพุทธัสสะนโมตัสสะบุคคะทูอะระหะทูสัมมาสัมพุทธัสสะนโมตัสสะบุคคะทูอะระหะทูสัมมาสัมพุทธัสสะพุทธังดัมมังสังฆังนามสังHuge amount of money it's going to cost, and the complex issues involved, and planning permission, and relationships with neighbours, and responsibility, and who's going to do it, and how it affects all the other things that we do, and so on and so forth. And then also uh, for the rest of the day, the uh, trust meeting, the Magabhavaka trust meeting. Most of the trustees coming from various directions of the country and. Being here and again looking at all the complex issues that are involved in running a place like this, it might, or probably does, seem fairly smooth running to those of you that just visit here and just see how nice and quiet and lovely the place is. But I can tell you, there's some not so easy and not so quiet issues that have to be dealt with at a different place and different time. So that's been part of what uh, we've been dealing with today. And it does take energy, but I I must say that um, at the end of of today's day, I feel very pleased to to see that as the years go by, these things get easier. And I was considering why they get easier, and I suppose there are many factors involved. But I do know that one thing that really makes these things a lot easier is is the consistent effort to work on being mindful. Now we hear this word a lot in Buddhism, being mindful, and in the Mahasatipatthana, the, the, the discourse, the great discourse on on establishing the foundations of mindfulness, the, the Buddha referred to you know, mindfulness or sati as um, as the one way. This is the ekayana margo. This is this is the one way. This is, this has to be developed if you want to be uh, free. So, it is uh, often mentioned and highly praised, but uh, I don't think that means that we we should just assume that we know what's involved. I think it's always good to stop and reflect on these these qualities, these these conditions, these factors of mind that that the Buddha spoke about. Because we hear of them so often, we can just get used to them. I find it helpful myself to to stop and revisit, reflect. Remember what these virtues, these conditions are about, and and in fact, remembering really is that's what sati, that's what mindfulness is about. The root of the word sati has the meaning of actually remembering. And so, sometimes in my own consideration of of this quality, I think of it as rememberability. 
the ability to remember or recollectability the ability to recollect and I think this is how I find it useful to consider not so much what it is but how it expresses itself it expresses itself as the ability to remember the ability to recollect the ability to be present one way of Translating this word sati, I find valid, is the word presence. And I think it's useful to look into it and, and find out for ourselves what words make sense. When we read in the scriptures or we hear the teachings, the encouragement, the insistence to be mindful, what, what part of our life, what aspect of our life is this being, is this referring to? And do we really know for ourselves how well established we are in it. Can we see it functioning? Like, if, if we ask ourselves the questions, am I more mindful than I used to be? Do we really know what that... Can we answer that? I would say, actually, reflecting on it, like after today's meeting, I think, well, actually, these days I am generally more mindful. And to me what that means is that I don't get lost in things so much. I don't get caught up in things. And when I'm not mindful, then I do get caught up. You know, I, I jump to conclusions. You know, I get fooled by the way things appear to be. So, cultivating mindfulness has got, uh, obviously the, the Buddha was talking about the profound uh, spiritual significance, the importance, the essential nature of developing not just mindfulness but right mindfulness, but also it's got very practical everyday applications just in our everyday life, the things that we do. If you're not mindful about what you do, how in your body, the first of the four foundations of mindfulness is mindfulness of body. And in formal meditation, this might mean contemplating or being present with a sense of our body posture. It might mean engaging in the recollection of of the parts of the body it might mean being with the body the sensation of the body breathing it can also mean being mindful being present for being attentive to the body in its different postures who how does it feel to be sitting how does it feel to be walking how does it feel to be standing how does it feel to be lying down? And it's encouraged that we cultivate mindfulness in the four postures, sitting, standing, walking and lying down. And this can be done formally, but also in everyday life. The encouragement is to have uh, continual sati, continual mindfulness. One of the descriptions of the Buddha was that he was maha sati, or great mindfulness, which meant that his mindfulness was uninterrupted. Now for us, our mindfulness sort of comes in spurts and starts and it's there and then it's not there and we feel quite clear and oh yeah this is it and with mindfulness is a sense of responsibility you feel oh yeah I can attend to these things and you can listen to something it's it's not just like concentration now concentration the aspect of steadiness is an, is, is one of the important aspects of concentration we were 
the steadiness of mind, being able to be still and focused. But mindfulness has a quality of perspective, of seeing things in perspective. So yes, sati and samadhi, mindfulness and concentration go together, that's important. But it's, it's useful to contemplate these things and see how they differ also. So with mindfulness, the, the uh, cultivation of it in, in all our activity of daily life with body, like you know, people who are not mindful tend to chip the breakfast bowls, at least in the monastery they do. I don't know what they do out there. I suppose they have traffic accidents and forget to fill out their tax forms on time and forget to ring up mother on their birthday and so on. In the monastery, when they're not mindful of the body, it's tend to bob up and down when they're sitting in meditation. You, you're going to start bobbing and then start dribbling. That's, that's a lack of mindfulness in, in the body. Or lack of mindfulness in speech when you, know, you get all enthusiastic and then you start talking too fast and then you end up contradicting yourself and, and saying things you didn't mean and, or somebody upsets you and the passions flare up and it just comes out of your mouth with, you know, you really don't want to say something but there's not the mindfulness to know that if you do say it there's going to be consequences there's not the perspective, there's not the presence there's not the attention to the activity of speech that registers the consequence of letting it come out. Mm. I like sometimes when I'm staying at people's houses, I, well, I haven't seen it for a long while, but I used to like watching Prime Minister's Questions. It used to be on Wednesday, 2 o'clock, and uh, you'd have these really powerful characters who have trained their speech habits by being solicitors, or, and there's the potent issues these questions being thrown at each other and the whole thing's being broadcast live all around the world and there's all these media people hanging on every single word and it brings about a tremendous intensity to the situation and they're each trying to wind each other up. Uh, I, I used to find it inspiring to, to watch the mindfulness of these guys because you have to be very mindful or these, these women in the case of Margaret Thatcher actually I never watched Margaret Thatcher but whoever it is, uh, to observe and see how present is this person in their speech. And you, one, can, one can, I think one can recognize it and, and it, because we all know it, at least unconsciously, we all know it and we admire it. You know, you know, like certain people when they're speaking, you can, you can sense, I feel, a, a certain quality of presence there. Somebody like, for instance, Nelson Mandela, if you listen to his speeches, gives wonderful speeches, very, very clear, there's feeling, there's presence, doesn't get carried away, there's mindfulness there, and it inspires. But if we're not mindful, well then we, we get caught up and, and end up you know, saying things that we regret. And so one way of, of cultivating mindfulness is to, to see the consequences of getting caught up. And if we if we get caught up in an action of body or speech or mind for that matter yeah. and then we suffer the thing to do is to stop and think alright oh, lack of mindfulness there lack of presence and when I'm not present this is what happens this is what happens and making that connection in our minds right this suffering that I'm experiencing right now 
this is the direct result of that cause. You know, when there isn't this this exercise, this capacity to be here now with the experience of being this person and who can speak and act and so on, when there isn't a sense of awareness, of presence, of attention to the activity, the intentional activity that I'm engaging in, well then, this is the consequence, it hurts. And and uh, this is something the Buddha encouraged, when we, we see the consequence of our heedlessness, then naturally mindfulness is, is, uh, is strengthened. You know, our whole being comes back. We don't have to just tell us, oh, that was a really, a really bad boy for saying that, I must be better next time. That moralistic kind of judging, superficial level of commenting on things isn't going to do it. But if in our body, and in our hearts, and our minds, we really feel the consequence, like if you embarrass yourself and you, you know, through being heedless, and then you feel ashamed, and that heat comes up, and to sit and feel it when you feel ashamed, or if you've been unkind to somebody, you got lost mindfulness, and you said something. Well, hopefully, didn't do anything, but you know, somehow lost in heedlessness, and then you feel ashamed afterwards. And if we stop and feel that now with mindfulness, exercise mindfulness now, we lost mindfulness then. We didn't pay proper attention in the right place, right time then. But when we remember it, well, then we can pay proper attention now. That means without judging it, without getting caught up and saying good, bad, right, wrong, just just feel it. And then the whole body-mind learns. And then sometimes it's very surprising, even, to, you know, it surprises us, we surprise ourselves. We find ourselves in complex situations and and suddenly we find it, it's, well, it's, I was going to say we find we can handle it, but it, feel, it doesn't even feel like we're handling it. Somehow situations are handled. Yeah. The practice takes care of things, the, you know, even though we may be, you know, we might be surprised that it's just suddenly a difficult situation that previously we just always kept getting tripped up by because of the this presence, this remembering to be here now, somehow the situation is handled. And so contemplating the consequence of losing it and forgetting ourselves and the consequence of that, that's that's inspiring. But also the other side of it is when when actually you find that you're more present for things. You know, I, I find this in, in, in my relationship with my family, which you've heard me talk about a number of times, I'm sure. Whether I'm either there in New Zealand and directly face-to-face or if I'm on the telephone. And, and one can use the exercise of, of bringing presence by using our meditation object like breathing or body posture. These things that one uses in formal meditation when you're faced with a difficult situation, yeah. well, like the other day, I was in Newcastle. I, go, I was invited to give a, a talk to the uh, at the council offices to the I don't know who they were people who work for the, the the council, the government, the government offices in Newcastle, in the northeast of Britain, England, and and I didn't have a clue what sort of people they were and what do you say to these people anyway? I don't know what they're interested in and. And I, I find the best way to deal with these situations where you're not quite sure what you're supposed to be doing is just to be mindful, just be present. And so just sit there in front of these people and just feel what it feels like to be in your body. To go back to the body posture and breathe. 
So whether it's the government offices in Newcastle or whether it's my mother down the other end of the telephone, one can, if you feel threatened to get lost or caught up in something, then we, we have these signs that we, we cultivate in formal meditation, like the breath, the experience of the body breathing. And just by bringing them to mind, they, they support us in our being there in the moment. Uh, and when we do this, when we find this works, and we find that there is increased presence, then, then uh, to also really recollect that, to reflect on that, to be mindful of that. Say, oh yeah, this is what happens when I'm more present feels good. Not so energy extravagant. Don't end up creating problems and other people and for yourself. And today's meeting we we one of the one of the tricky questions that not just dealing with today but the, the trust has been and the Sangamita group have been dealing with for the last I don't know, couple of years probably is the uh, possibility of having to pay VAT on the building work on the retreat house and that that project down there if all the VAT is paid uh, it's going to cost tens of thousands of pounds you know 40 50 60 thousand pounds and that's that's a, a lot of money and so the trustees are obliged to make the best use of all the donations that are given by the lay people so it's right to see if there's a way of actually recovering that VAT and getting it back but it turns out the only way to do it is this as if the monastery charges people to stay there, which of course contradicts the whole principle of what we're about. One of the principles this place is about, we don't charge people to stay here, anybody can come here. And uh, so is there a legal way of actually going about this? And so there's all sorts of convoluted plans that have come up over the, the last few months of ways that we might be able to do this, whereby committed supporters of the monastery could undertake to pay a certain amount for everybody who comes to stay there, so the people who are coming to stay they're not actually paying, but somebody's paying, and uh, that way the, the trust gets all the money back, and and uh, and it seems like maybe both sides are going to win. And but you know, we've been going on about this for a very long time, and and it actually has never really felt right. And it's been quite complex and difficult. And VAT is such a headache anyway. Any of you know about these things? And and so today it all came to a head, and and the discussion actually reached a point of resolution whereby the decision was taken that actually the trust is not going to claim the VAT back uh, for ethical reasons. It's just basically, fundamentally, people just don't feel right about it. And um, after all the efforts to find a way through, it just doesn't seem to work. And so, although we may disagree with the law, um, this is the way the law is in this country, and so the VAT will be paid, and that's that. And what, what arose for me was a, a sense, a tremendous sense of relief because I, I realized that I've been conflicted throughout this thing. On one level, my feeling is that we shouldn't be fighting to get what's not given. If the government says there's a tax to pay, well, you just pay it. That's my feeling. I mean, all this convoluted carry-on of clever plans, which, you know, I'm as good as anybody else to come up with clever plans for these things. I've got a very tricky mind that can come up with all sorts of devious ideas and so long as it's legal, rationally, one thinks, oh well this is alright, we should be able to not pay it. But still on the heart level, it doesn't feel right. And well, one of the things that mindfulness can do is actually can hold this kind of conflict. Personally I find this a lot in my life where 
my heart tells me one thing and my head tells me something else. Now, I don't know why it is this way. Maybe it's this way for everybody. You know, somebody once told me it's because my sun is in Virgo and my moon is in Pisces. Apparently that does it. And, but I, I don't know, maybe it's because of the scientific education that I had or, or as I say, maybe everybody's like this. You know, we can feel one thing but think another. Now, if there's not mindfulness, we can make a real problem out of that. We can just jump to one aspect of it and say, well, it's this way. When actually it's not really clear. You know, we don't really, we haven't investigated the whole thing. And so it takes mindfulness to hold complexity. One of the characteristics of fundamentalist organizations is that they actually come up with simplistic solutions to complex problems. Fundamentalism is actually the opposite of mindfulness. You just jump to a position, just just take a fixed position on something and say, well, this is how it is. When if you ask yourself deep, deep questions and listen to those questions, you actually there's always an element of uncertainty in pretty much everything. Even the law of uncertainty, we're not really convinced that it's true not completely convinced, if we were completely, thoroughly convinced that the law of impermanence was true, we'd probably be enlightened. I mean, part of us doubts even the law of impermanence. Probably, part of us probably thinks that things are permanent. You know, like, I think I'm permanent sometimes, despite all the evidence to the contrary. Now, mindfulness means that actually we can feel passionately convinced about something, and we can feel uncertain about it at the same time. And we can have all sorts of variations in between. Mindfulness means that actually we don't have to take a fixed position. Mindfulness is able to hold things in perspective. And so with mindfulness, with concentration, with patience, then eventually something emerges out of it. That's it. That's it. And it's not like something I decided or I figured out. It's just something manifests, the way became clear, the truth revealed itself. So this has got, uh, this teaching on mindfulness has got many uh, obvious benefits, practical everyday applications, like how to deal with meetings, they've got all sorts of issues involved. If we're developing mindfulness in the body, mindfulness of feelings, mindfulness of mind, mindfulness of, of the mental conditions, these Four foundations of mindfulness that the Buddha encouraged. It's got very practical everyday life applications, and it's also very clearly, definitely, also the the inner dimension of our life. This this holds true, and if we can consciously appreciate this, well, then we've got something we can turn to. In meditation, you can sometimes really feel confident. I really know what I'm doing now. I'm meditating on my breath counting my out-breaths or watching the body posture or, or remembering the theme of loving-kindness or whatever the meditation object is. And I know what I'm doing. We feel really, really good about knowing what we're doing and really clear and sometimes it works and we feel it works and we get peaceful and even feel better afterwards. And, and yet there are other times when this doesn't, I just don't know what we're doing. It's just, I just, what am I doing anyway? It's like, no matter how much we try and tell ourselves, oh, I'm supposed to be watching my breath. Well, what's the point of watching my breath? And what's the point of life anyway? And meditation, Buddhism, and 
being a human being, what's it all about? It's because sometimes the inner structures that have previously supported us dissolve and we, our experience is one of actually total uncertainty and, and no strategy can sure us up again. Now if we've established ourselves, our practice on, on getting good at techniques or getting off on knowing what we're doing, then when that's happening, we've got a problem. If we've established ourselves as the Buddha encouraged on mindfulness, well then, even actually when we feel like we don't know what we're doing, it's still all right. And that's good news. And when you can just sit there and know, I really don't know what's going on. I really don't know what's going on. I don't know what's going on. It's good. It feels really good when you sometimes just to sit there and I don't know what's going on. That's what's going on. I know what's going on. I know that I don't know what's going on. Now, I'm not being cute by saying that. If you're really in that position and you reflect in that way, it takes us back to this present moment. There's some ground underneath us again. Our refuge in mindfulness shows itself as a real safe refuge, as a real support, a practical support. You can sit there and feel confused and, and simply know there is confusion. No strategy, no trick, trying to watch our breath, trying to be with the body, doing fancy breathing, lying down, sitting, standing, walking, any of the four postures. It's, just, it's all over the place and, and just feel confused and disoriented. And But we can know, confused and disoriented, hmm, like this, confused and disoriented. And mindfulness, as an aid to mindfulness, we can, we can note it and that's, the skillful means generally referred to as labelling, not in the rather unhealthy way of labelling people, but noting or labelling in meditation. We can use the mental noting or mental labelling as a right. Anticipation. If you're caught up in anticipating something and you're really restless and unsure, just the, the mental noting, anticipating, brings mindfulness that quality of watchfulness, presence, attention, to bear on this dynamic, this body-mind dynamic that's happening called anticipation. Now, when we're caught up in anticipation, we're lost in anticipation, we're actually out there in this virtual reality, in this virtual world, this imagined future moment, doing whatever it is we're anticipating, anxious about it, having an interview, or dealing with a difficult problem, or telling somebody something difficult. It's not happening yet. It may never happen, actually. Something might stop it from happening. But here we are in this moment feeling totally caught up in anticipation and anxiety. Now, that, that's, what's that? That's delusion, isn't it? I mean, that's, you know, we can't pretend that there's anything skillful or, or, or positive about being caught up or lost in anticipation or anxiety. With the skillful application of attention, with the cultivation of mindfulness in the right way, in the right place, we can see it in perspective, so right, anticipation happening now. The mental activity that's able to imagine the future and speculate about what might happen. What if this happens? What if that happens? We can mindfully know, all right, mental proliferation. Right here and now, in this experience, this moment, mental proliferation, anticipation, here again. Good news. Feels really good. And if we can consciously reflect and say, right, this is, 
This is how we bring ourselves into the present moment. And in that, coming back to the present moment, noticing how much, how easy it is for, for clarity to express itself, how discernment can function healthily when there's real mindfulness, when there's here and now mindfulness or presence functioning. Again, if we experience this in a moment of coming back to this present moment, reflecting on that, oh right, yeah, this is, this is the consequence. Clarity, discernment, these things happen when I'm mindful. And so just that recollection itself inspires us to future, or conditions future moments of mindfulness. That recollection conditions future moments of mindfulness. And most of us, I expect, are familiar with the, the skillful means of, for cultivating mindfulness that comes in formal meditation when, you know, like watching the breath, the most generally used meditation technique that you know, decide to sit for 20, 30, 40 minutes and so I'm going to stay with the breath. I'm going to watch the sensation of the body breathing, breathing in, breathing out, at the nostril or at the belly, whether it's feeling the cool sensation at the nostril and holding attention there, steadying attention there. The steadiness and the holding is samadhi. The mindfulness is the remembering, to keep coming back, keep coming back. And so cultivating mindfulness, it's good to recollect that in meditation, you know, every time the mind wanders and the mind drifts and gets caught up in thinking or fantasizing or imagining something, in the moment we remember that we got lost and come back, that is a moment of increasing mindfulness. And so it's a moment to feel good about. Yeah, I, I know my, my own mind and, and I've heard it from many other people that we can really get get into a big thing of giving ourselves a hard time for getting lost, getting caught up and, and forgetting ourselves and so on. Well, that's easy to do, but actually, well, it's not so easy, but really much more worthwhile is when we do remember our meditation object and begin again, it's good to feel good about that, to really, oh, right, thank goodness I remembered. One teaching I heard very, very early on in my life as a monk for which I'm eternally grateful because I had a lot of fear in my first years as a monk, uh, just for also just irrational fear, all the time sometimes. And as one teacher pointed out, I said, "Well, the only thing you need to be afraid of is the length of time it takes you to remember." I thought, "Well, that was helpful. That was a gift. I can, I can take that and reflect on that. The only thing it need to be afraid of is the length of time it takes you to remember, because that inspires us." to actually make the effort to remember more often. So whether it's in daily life practice or formal practice, mindfulness in the body, mindfulness in feelings, feeling what we feel, beings and sensations, actually knowing how to be present in our sensations, the agreeability and disagreeability of sensations. It's easy to know that we like something or we dislike something, but to not give value to liking or disliking is another matter. To just simply feel agreeability. Recently I was, I was at somebody's house and I, had this, I was offered this very agreeable meal. Fortunately in this country we're usually offered very agreeable meals. But on this particular day it was a very agreeable meal and 
and was, at the end of the meal there was, there was this nice little sort of fancy tart thing that I remember asking what this yellow stuff was and they said oh this is creme anglaise and uh, I thought oh yeah that sounds posh and, and then they said oh well it's only, we only call it creme anglaise when we put it on this fancy tart when we put it on apple pie we call it custard well whatever it was called I noted on this occasion that uh, the agreeability of it and it's actually a very interesting meditation to just sit and watch agreeability, disagreeability. It's, we often think that we shouldn't be, be delighting in things or we shouldn't be disliking things, as if there's something unnatural about liking and disliking. Liking and disliking, we can't stop them. What practice involves is actually a willingness to simply study them with mindfulness and see that they're just conditioned. See how conditioned they are, how there's a certain little trigger and then agreeability, the sensation of agreeability arises. Another little sensation comes along and disagreeability. And instead of thinking, I love this, I want more uh, creme anglaise and fancy tart, you can just watch, oh, agreeability. Yeah. Or if somebody uses the, the knife they've chopped up the garlic and onion with for chopping up the mango, and then you're really looking forward to this nice, really nice mango, and you, you dish your spoon in and curve up this lovely, just right mango that is not one of these force-fed things that's come from wherever. It's actually a real, real mango that's come from Thailand, and just one of those really super delicious ones, and you're, you're anticipating it, and you, you get it in your mouth, and then you realize, ugh, they cut it with the same knife they cut the garlic and the onion, and feeling is, it could be, oh yuck, when are they going to get their act together and you know, when are or there could just be also disagreeability. Practicing with feeling what it feels like, knowing these feelings of agreeability and disagreeability. So mindfulness is something that we can apply in, in all situations. Mindfulness of the body, mindfulness of feelings, mindfulness of the mind itself, or what's called jitta nusati. Yeah. My understanding of this aspect of the cultivation of mindfulness is, one aspect of it is reflecting on the state of mindfulness itself. It's awareness of awareness itself. What quality of awareness are we functioning out of? What quality of awareness is there? And if we've not noticed this, reflected this, we can again just get caught up in it and we can get attached to, addicted to having really pristine mindfulness because it's so nice when we're really mindful. You you go on retreat and everything's totally conducive and and you're healthy, the weather's good and you can feel really together and really, and just, oh, this is how it should be. I really just love this, this and this. And when it's expanded state and then you come off retreat and got to start talking again and answering telephones and our mindfulness is not samma sati informed by samma ditti it's not perfect right mindfulness informed by perfect right view it's, it's relative and conditioned by the conducive environment we're in and our heart contracts and constricts and we're not as present we're not as watchful we're not as alert as we have been and it's not as agreeable as it was well the, the practice is which is the thing to do is just oh right this is the experience of limited mindfulness, of limited attention, of limited awareness. When the heart contracts and we're not so present anymore, this is what it feels like. If we're not practicing, 
He said, oh, I've got to go and retreat again. I've got to, you know, I can't practice in these situations. Well, actually, we can practice in all situations. It's definitely true. I'm sure nobody would disagree that some situations are more conducive than others. Uh, but the idea that we have to always have totally conducive situations to practice in is, is, a, is a false idea of practice. It's, it's much more useful to us to have the idea of practice that we can practice in all situations. Cultivating mindfulness, body, speech and mind, reflecting on these things in our everyday activity. Mindfulness, the four foundations of mindfulness, body, sensation, Mindfulness of mindfulness itself, awareness of awareness itself, uh, and the fourth foundation of mindfulness of dhamma nusati, which is recollection or contemplation or reflection on attention to these patterns of activity of consciousness that the Buddha identified. When he, the Buddha spoke about, see, there's there's a certain number of things, a certain amount of insight that we need to arrive at before consciousness is sufficiently potentized to be able to release out of ignorance and conceit. He didn't use those words, but he meant something like that. That we we need to there need to be certain particular insights. There's all sorts of interesting, amazing things that you can learn about and and, and have knowledge and information about, but actually it's not doesn't pertain to liberation. You know the story of the image of the Buddha picking up the handful of leaves from the forest and asking which is greater, all the leaves and the trees in the forest or the leaves in my hand. And, and the monks have said, all oh, the leaves in the forest are much greater than the few leaves in your hand, Lord. And the Buddha said, well, so it is. All the truths of existence and all the things you could be studying and knowing are much greater than what I've taught you. But, he said, what I've taught you, the four, founda- four noble truths, four foundations of mindfulness, the five hindrances, seven factors of enlightenment, these particular dynamics which he identified and highlighted, these are not just boring old lists that a bunch of people out in India came up with because they like lots of numbers and things which is, that's what I used to think it's a rather disrespectful attitude but rather the Buddha identified the aspect of our human existence the aspects of our human existence which need to be penetrated with insight and so he listed these things in a way that's convenient for us to remember and, and to contemplate so dhammanusati, or mindfulness on these dhammas, is reflecting on these teachings the Buddha gave in a way that actually we, we use them initially as concepts and we consider them, but eventually they start to sink in, they start to come in. And so the mind, when, we, when experience impacts on us, instead of just going off into reaction, the mind goes into a dhamma contemplation. Yeah, so, you know, when we chant in the beginning, Buddha Nusati, Dhamma Nusati, when I do the introduction to the chanting, Handamayang Buddha Nusati, says, let's now recollect the Buddha. Nusati means recollection. So recollecting, in this case, in that case, recollecting qualities of the Buddha, the Dhamma and the Sangha, but here, recollecting the Dhamma, recollect, recollecting our minds around these Dhamma themes, initially conceptually, until they become start to become internalized. And so recollection is a skillful means for cultivating mindfulness, the kind of mindfulness that really strengthens the heart. A strong heart is a peaceful heart. And a peaceful heart is a clear heart in which understanding, knowledge, insight can arise. 
So how do we make our heart strong? Or well, one way we can make our heart strong, there's many ways, faith and energy, one way of making our heart strong is this conscious cultivation of appreciation of mindfulness. And so as I've been saying this evening, it's it's not something we have to have special situations in for to cultivate, it's something we can do all the time. And to remember this is this is something the Buddha held up as, as profoundly important. Yeah. Watchfulness, knowingness is another word that I, I find useful. Knowingness, the knowingness in a situation. What is the knowingness factor in our experience? How much knowingness is there? How much watchfulness is there? It's my experience that if we give preeminence to this faculty, then the other spiritual faculties of faith, energy, concentration and, and, and discernment, these other faculties, actually, there's less chance we're going to go out of balance if we go pre- give preeminence to mindfulness. So I think that's enough for this evening. Thank you very much for your attention. <laughs> Thank you.